Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. Hey listeners, in this episode, we're catching up with a pharmacist to talk about 340B, some of the changes happening there, and also telehealth, how they have pivoted to using telehealth in their clinic due to COVID. Hope you enjoy the episode with Jengis Whitner. And I wanted to remind you that my new book focused on women in pharmacy leadership titled How Pharmacists Lead will be available October 1st on Amazon. You can go ahead and pre-order the ebook now, but be sure to watch for the paperback to drop October 1st. I hope you'll check it out to be inspired by many other women pharmacists who are pioneers. All right, so today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Our guest, Dr. Jangus Whitner, is a primary care clinical pharmacist and the 340B program manager for Primary One Health in Columbus, Ohio. He also serves on the board of directors for the National Center for Farm Worker Health and locally on the Clinician Advisory Board for La Clinica Latina Free Medical Clinic in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Whitner received his PharmD degree from the University of Toledo and completed two years of postgraduate training, PGY-1 in pharmacy practice and PGY-2 in ambulatory care pharmacy. He became a 340B Apexa certified expert in 2019 and is the founder and chair of the Ohio FQHC, Federally Qualified Health Center 340B Consortium. Jengis, welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And now that our listeners have heard a little bit about your background, maybe you can fill in any gaps from that intro or share a little bit about your personal life. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll keep it short because uh, I know we have a lot, uh, a lot of exciting stuff to talk about. But um, my current role, I'm I'm split uh, part of my time, about a day and a half to two days, depending on the uh, the workload and business needs. I'm in clinic seeing patients one on one. So uh, at my health center in Ohio, we have uh, collaborative practice agreements that allow us to manage chronic disease states for our patients. Um, and prescribe and um, medications to the pharmacy, order labs, and um, and and so forth. So um, we do that for a variety of um, chronic disease states, including diabetes, COPD, smoking cessation, um, hypertension, and we're looking to expand uh, very quickly into HIV prep um, and uh, possibly Vivitrol for substance use disorder. Um, and aside from that, our, our pharmacists we. We all do spirometry, pulmonary function testing, medication therapy management, CMRs, um, and some population health united uh, or population health with uh, managed care organization uh, for metrics like metadherence and diabetes and so forth. And then there's probably a few things that I'm missing, but um, it's really great to uh, for me to to still have. Um, a foot into the patient care um, side of things because I, I really enjoy the longitudinal uh, relationships that you make with patients and um, as, as you help them uh, get a handle and um, uh, get a hold and control over um, their health. So 
Um, the other part of my position, I'm uh, doing administrative uh, items related to the 340B program. Um, so the 340B program, for those who don't know, um, it, it began in 1992. Um, it's uh, a program that allows safety net providers like us, federally qualified health centers that have a lot of uncompensated care, um, to uh, stretch uh, and ex uh, our scarce federal resources by providing us discounts from drug manufacturers um, on medications that then we can turn around and immediately pass those discounts on to patients and additionally use those savings to uh, expand those services um, for our patients. So at Primary One Health, like other FQHCs, um, we see patients regardless of their ability to pay. Um, and so with this uncompensated care, we're able to offset that with the 340B uh, program savings um, and still provide very high quality care um, and um, robust services for our patients and be a comprehensive, you know, one-stop shop. Um, we have uh, primary care, behavioral health, dental, vision, dietary, nutrition, physical therapy, substance use disorder and addiction, and of course, um, clinical pharmacy services. So um, the 340B program is layered throughout all the departments, but it really helps us um, uh, provide the best care and high quality care for some of the most vulnerable patients of central Ohio. Awesome. Thanks for, for the background, Jengis. And just to back up a little bit, um, for the listeners who may not be as familiar with 340B, although you gave a, a good, uh, background of the program, it's, it's definitely become uh, very popular, uh, over the last several years. Um, but, you know, how did you kind of um, come to to work at a safety net clinic? And maybe what are some of the differences between a, um, you know, a, maybe a traditional uh, uh, ambulatory care setting versus a, a, a federally qualified health center or other type of safety net uh, setting? Tell Kind of just compare and contrast a little bit to um, let our listeners know what that might look like. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I got introduced to federally qualified health centers or FQHCs. Um, it's also, they're also known as uh, community health centers, CHCs, depending on um, uh, what conversation you're in. And when I was a PGY2 resident with the Ohio State uh, University College of Pharmacy, um, my contracted site for the ambulatory care practice um, was at Primary One Health. And I got exposed early on um, through one of our pharmacy team meetings that they wanted some some more pharmacist involvement in the 340B program. Uh, I, like other <laughs> uh, young uh, residents, very ambitious and uh, uh, like to spread ourselves a, a little thin at times, um, just because we're excited about a lot of things, immediately, you know, uh, hopped on board. You know, I, I, I thought that was a great idea. I didn't really know much about it, but I knew it was essential to how safety net providers operate. Once I started attending those committee meetings and, and learning more about 340B, um, there's some free resources like the Apexis On Demand, Apexis 340B University On Demand. It's free for, um, for anyone. There's um, modules related to hospital side, to FQHC side. Speaking of education, are you aware of the 2014 Drug Disposal of Controlled Substances ruling 
that regards safe disposal of unused medications? Well, we're lucky to have RX Destroyer sponsoring the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. RX Destroyer ready-to-use chemical drug disposal systems are safe, easy, and affordable products, which protect the environment and can save thousands in fines. To get more information on products, training, and medication waste compliance, check out www.rxdestroyer.com slash talk to your pharmacist. I really became very intrigued with, you know, there's, there's some program complexities um, that, uh, you know, that I, I was very curious about, but also there's always some, I felt very challenged. There was always something more to learn and to, um, to do. And at the end of the day, when you optimize that program, you're optimizing patient care and the benefactor is the patient. Um, and so throughout my residency, I got more and more involved, more and more interested and um, then was fortunate enough to be hired on at our FQHC um, after my residency. And I really felt like federally qualified health centers were um, one of the true nonprofits in that um, the mission isn't just something on the website. Um, so we, 51% or a majority of our board of directors are patients of our practice, and they're in charge of choosing the CEO and, and so forth. Um, and so I really got to see that uh, even though we're the second largest FQHC in Ohio, um, it's kind of a small, large or a large, small organization um, that um, you can really see the patient impact in all of the decisions from the top down um, across the board. And since 340B um, affects all departments um, in, in some way, shape or form, um, it was a high impact um area on an organizational level, but also we pass these discounts on to patients on the front lines um, at the pharmacy. And so it had a very individualized impact level as well. And uh, to the second part of your question about the different types of safety net providers. Um, so health centers, we, um, we are, uh, I guess, uh, report to or regulated by BIPIC, the Bureau of Primary Healthcare, which is um, uh, in conjunction with HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration that administers the 340B program. Um, there are other eligible entities beyond community health centers. Um, and those are, let's, you know, other safety net hospitals like critical access hospitals, um, some disproportionate share hospitals where they have to, a certain percentage of the care that they provide has to disproportionately be um, uncompensated care, indigent care, and then they may be eligible for the 340B program. And they have to maintain that level if they're going to be eligible. Um, there's also um, uh, Ryan White um, and uh, tuberculosis centers and fusion centers um, and a variety of other that I'm definitely missing um, and other grantees. So um, the program has many different entities, but we all have the same purpose, um, and that's uh, to best take care of some of the most vulnerable and often overlooked uh, patients that fall into the gaps of our healthcare system. And um, I just feel very fortunate to be in a position that um, can make an impact in that. Yeah, thanks for giving a little bit more of that background. And it is so important to have pharmacists involved because the 340B program is a, a drug pricing program. It's run by the federal government, but um, it does require manufacturers uh, to give discounted um, drug prices uh, to those covered or eligible entities. So 
having pharmacists involved is important. Lots of, um, you know, compliance and regulations to be aware of. And, and uh, you mentioned Apexis. Um, that, uh, for our listeners, is the um, it is the 340B prime vendor, or essentially, uh, you know, many of us think about a, a GPO or a group purchasing organization as one that's doing all the contracts. Apexis not only uh, has been awarded the kind of contracting uh, award to do that for 340B for the past several, several years, but as you mentioned, they have a lot of educational resources and things um, that people who want to learn more can can do. So, um, so and then you know, right now with 340B Jengus, uh, maybe you could just hit a few of the the kind of high points about what's happening between uh, the manufacturers and and the um, uh, covered entities. Yeah, um, so this is a very big hot topic. Um, we could probably talk about this for hours, but I'll try to try to sum it up. Um, recently, there's been, um, in, in some eyes, it would be considered uh, different attacks on 340B. Um, but essentially, what, what's happening is um, drug manufacturers have resorted to um, putting covered entities into very, very um, sensitive positions. Uh, what they've done is is ask uh, cover entities to provide claims data uh, for all of the contract pharmacy claims that uh, can be going. So I guess I should back up. 340B can be administered two different ways through an entity-owned in-house pharmacy and you know clinically administered meds, but also we can partner with local um, pharmacy partners like Independence or you know the grocery store chain that type of thing to help administer our program that way. Some entities have just in-house pharmacies, some entities just have contract pharmacies, or some have both. Um, and so contract pharmacies are a relatively newer concept, um, new as in compared to when 340B was created in 1992. Uh, the official contract pharmacy guidance, um, I guess the most recent contract pharmacy guidance that came out from HRSA was in 2010. So there's been substantial guidance out for um, over a decade. What we're seeing right now in the 340B space is actually kind of shocking considering um, precedent really has been set for 10 years and um, now we're seeing some uh, some backtracking. So what has happened is there's been a couple major events leading up to uh, the most recent uh, happenings from drug manufacturers and um, basically there was some guidance put out as an executive order throughout um, the current president's administration a couple of years ago. Um, basically indicating that uh, federal agencies do not have the authority to enforce uh, guidance or sub-regulatory guidance. Um, there also was an, uh, the separate item was there was a lawsuit from a health center called Genesis Healthcare, um, where HRSA um, performed an audit at their health center. And instead of listing a certain items as area of improvement based on guidance, they um, cited them as having findings, audit findings, um, negative audit findings, obviously. And um, Genesis Healthcare sued and actually won. Um, and HRSA had to reverse those uh, those audit findings because what those items were were based on guidance. And so those two items, those two scenarios that I just described, kind of set the precedence for what we're seeing 
um, right now in July and August where drug manufacturers are, um, not all of them, but there are some major ones that have basically said, threatened to remove 340B discounts at the contract pharmacy level. Um, some of them, if the cover entities don't comply with some very concerning uh, data sharing, or some of them have just skipped the data sharing and said, we're not going to provide it at contract pharmacies at all, the 340B discount. And that's the whole basis is that in a decade ago in 2010, that the document that came out was guidance, sub-regulatory guidance, not uh, federal statute. And so um, HRSA has remained silent for the most part on this um, at this time until the most recent drug manufacturer, I believe they said they're, they're, they're reviewing things. But the National Association of Community Health Centers, 340B Health, um, American Hospital Association, I mean, there are a lot of people in uproar about this because it, despite what some of the manufacturers have conveyed is with, uh, you know, it won't affect patient care. The reality is it is the patients who are, who are going to suffer. And at, at my health center in particular, we solely administer through um, contract pharmacies. We don't own an in-house pharmacy. And we chose that model because we serve patients. We, ha- we serve 48,000 unduplicated, unique patients every year. And our patients that use our 340B program are spread out, spread out over 200 zip codes. And so we strategically choose contract pharmacy partners where our patients live, work, and play um, so that we minimize transportation barriers and other barriers to medication access. And when drug manufacturers threaten to remove 340B for their products, um, they think that, you know, well, maybe it's, you know, they're uh, just affecting the, you know, the savings that the entity gets um, for those medications, which we then, um, as a side note, we are required by the Bureau of Primary Health Care and law to um, reinvest 100% of 340B savings in the patient care. So indirectly, that still affects patients. But what I think they're missing directly is that we are not, if they remove those 340B discounts from the contract pharmacies, we are not able to extend those discounts and pass those discounts through to patients uh, at the pharmacy level um, because we're not able to readily get those discounts to those patients, which we were already passing through. Some entities don't have the in-house because in-house pharmacies are not at um, under the, they're not under the, um, heat, I guess, as contract pharmacies right now. Um, and so, um, but not every covered entity um, has the space or the money or, you know, and so forth to invest in an in-house pharmacy, um, let alone invest in it within the month and a half heads up that some of these drug manufacturers have given us. So it's really unfortunate overall, um, without continuing on a tangent, I, I just would like to summarize that it's just very unfortunate that drug manufacturers have kind of, or not all of them, some, I, I want to preface that, some drug manufacturers have pitted the covered entities as an enemy against them, uh, the drug manufacturers, um, when really we are very collaborative. Um, we understand that, you know, this isn't a taxpayer funded, this is not a taxpayer funded government program. This is a partnership between us and drug manufacturers, and we want to collaborate in the partnership. So um, it seems like Drug manufacturers have taken the easy way out by choosing the entities as a target. Um, when, if we look at some of the major problems in the space, a lot of the drug manufacturers are 
seeking more information from entities beyond what were required by statute for just Medicaid claims to prevent duplicate discounts for Medicaid. They want data for commercial and Medicare plans to prevent duplicate rebates on that, which we're not required to work with them on because those are voluntary rebates that they in, um, enter in with PBMs. And um, what is likely going to happen, and we're already seeing this happen across the United States, is PBMs are contracting, um, doing what's called discriminatory contracting, where they're reimbursing entities like FQHCs and 340B safety net providers less money just because they know that we get drugs at a discount. And basically, they're taking a chunk of our 340B savings for them. It seems like the instead of going against the PBMs, the drug manufacturers have chosen the easier target, which is the entities. And um, everything is all coming to the forefront right now. Um, so I, I would love to provide answers to all of your questions, uh, Hillary. I, I don't know if I have all the answers because everything's so changing, but I hope that gave a, a good enough summary and I didn't uh, ramble too much. Yeah, well, there's a there's a lot happening in the 340B space, and uh, certainly as as the manufacturers or some of them um, have have taken a stronger stance against uh, certain things, uh, of and particularly about contract pharmacies. And as you mentioned, just to summarize, that um, not every clinic may have an in-house pharmacy, and for those that do not. They typically will work with a, a separate pharmacy, perhaps a Walgreens or, um, or another retail pharmacy that will share in the 340B savings with them and they serve as that contract pharmacy. And so there are obviously uh, ways that, that clinics who don't have a pharmacy are basically unable to participate in 340B if they don't have uh, that contract pharmacy. Uh, but again, it is it is a challenge to be able to um, ensure that you know patients have um, the the cheapest drug uh, in that kind of arrangement and scenario. So I'm sure we'll we'll continue to see more over the next few months um, as this kind of heats up. But let's kind of flip uh, over to another topic that is certainly affecting, Clinics and and just hospitals, uh, really the entire healthcare system is COVID nineteen, and that has completely changed how we deliver care. Uh, in that we are um, seeing a lot more telehealth, and uh, that and tell us a little bit more about how you guys have pivoted to telehealth, and then maybe a little bit about how. Um, pharmacy services have been integrated into that model. Yeah, definitely another another timely topic. Um, yeah, I, I would say um, we kind of had to at, at my health center uh, become experts in very little time, right? So everyone wanted to pretend like uh, everyone knew what they were doing three months ago, uh, or I guess. At the beginning of the pandemic, everyone wished that we would have started telehealth three months prior to have a handle on it when it, when it hit, right? So, but for many health centers um, like ours, that just wasn't the case. We really hadn't dived into the telehealth arena prior to COVID. And so navigating the best way to prepare our staff and our clinicians and our patients for telehealth at the same time as keeping up with the not so clear and not so smooth timeline for um, 
state and national organizations surrounding telehealth um, for COVID was, was a lot to keep up with. And what I mean by that is um, it seemed like there were a lot of private and, com- you know, private commercial insurers, also Medicare, Medicaid's on the state level, um, changing their billing requirements for telehealth during the pandemic. At, sometimes it seemed like at least one of them was changing something every day in the beginning. Um, so keeping up with that, the DEA was doing waivers um, in SAMHSA and then other uh, CMS waivers and things for for billing, but also for how to handle prescriptions and prescribing and what happens if a patient's stuck in, your patient from Ohio is stuck in quarantine in Michigan, you know, how does that work? Um, and, and so forth. So to keep up with all of that, we created a telehealth task force at my health center. Um, it was a multidisciplinary team consisting of billing, patient services, 340B, compliance, IT, process improvement, and clinical leadership from nursing, medical, behavioral health, and pharmacy. Um, we started meeting daily. We had a goal of transitioning all care from to 80 to 90% telehealth as best we could. We wanted to identify and monitor the, the guidance, the waivers, the exceptions that I alluded to, looking at available resources and video virtual telehealth software, uh, audio only options, how to work with interpreters. And then, you know, do we have enough IT equipment to, to get things done? And then also we had to figure out educating our staff, developing workflows, translating those into user-friendly documents for our providers, and of course, letting our patients know um, what's going on effectively. Um, so a big take-home point from this is that, you know, there are a lot of uh, moving parts, but our health center made sure that someone from both 340B and clinical pharmacy was part of that team early on. I think this helped greatly with provider support and education, patient medication access, identifying 340B hurdles early on, and then also the fact that in our instance, we didn't have electronic prescribing of controlled substances or EPCS before COVID. Um, so we had to adapt and develop workflows for calling in controlled substances um, and that couldn't be printed and given up, uh, given and picked up by patients. And also looking at expediting approval of modified language in our policy and procedures to make sure that new initiatives are, are implemented appropriately within our organization. Um, so jumping to clinical pharmacy in particular, all of our visits for clinical pharmacy were obviously done face-to-face um, in person with in, embedded within our clinics. And so we wanted to assess the feasibility of each service that we offered to figure out, hey, can this be done via telehealth? Is it ideal to have it done via telehealth? You know, what are our options um, if we wanted to go completely telehealth? So operationally, we looked at, can the service be reasonably performed via telehealth? For majority of services that fell into this category, diabetes, high blood pressure, COPD, um, MTM, and, and CMRs, although sometimes can be incredibly tedious over the phone, they can be done. It helps, I believe, when you have the virtual video component and patients can show you um, their bottles and show you their insulin pens and, and, um, and so forth. And then you want to you start a criteria of stipulations that require an, an essential face-to-face encounter. What cannot be done via telehealth reasonably? And if your patients are calling into a call center um, for your organization, does that call center know the stipulations and criteria to know whether to schedule or reschedule appointments via telehealth to send you a message um, to schedule after the pandemic or, or what that uh, may look like? And then you want to look at this sustainability of the services if you're going to move to telehealth. 
Um, so what does your billing look like? You, you want to take how you're currently doing it for face-to-face encounters and compare it to the exemptions and waivers that are allowed by insurers during COVID-19. So in Ohio, pharmacists were recognized as providers. And although our state Medicaid department has not assigned us Medicaid provider numbers yet, it's delayed due to COVID, added to the list of things that are delayed due to COVID. Um, but state Medicaid, they have clarified that we're permitted to bill incident two visits like 99211s um, within our health centers. Um, and so we looked at what payers were expecting for video and audio only requirements for telehealth visits for 99211 and adapted to that. And then we had to look at other state and payer restrictions. Um, were there restrictions on where the patient can be located or the provider could be located? Many of those are have been waived, at least during the public health emergency. Um, but some had different billing depending on if it was a true audio plus video virtual session, or it was an audio only telephonic encounter. Some um, insurers to this day, August 26th, do not uh, want uh, uh, to reimburse the same for audio only as they would audio and video. Um, And so you want to make sure that that is uh, handled. Um, And then also, does it affect how you schedule your patient? Uh, your patients as they as they call in. So another oper- or, um, sustainability consideration would be the changes in your patient volume and referral impact. So with our pharmacists no longer embedded into the clinic, um, it may reduce our volume because we're not getting that in-person handoff for referrals. We used to do a lot of on-the-fly appointments or you know introductions and warm handoffs so that we could schedule them up to um, to have individual visits. Uh, you'll want to. Make sure that your referrals are, that providers still think of pharmacy, even though we're not down the hall anymore. Um, so, um, you know, making sure you're communicating to them, yes, yes we're still here um, with telehealth. And um, another ways you could do that is proactive identification of, of populations, like running condition-specific reports through your EMR, like for A1Cs and blood pressures, tobacco use, and get your patient volume back up that way. Yeah. Any, any, any questions so far? I know I tend yeah, to, to jump right great. in. That's um, great. There are so many different considerations. Well, I mean, with, with telehealth, there is a lot of opportunity, you know, especially with not having to come into the clinic and things like that. But as you mentioned, there are so many considerations from scheduling um, to, you know, out of sight, out of mind, the pharmacist isn't right there embedded right next to the, to the, um, uh, physician, uh, then, you know, how is, you've really got to work on that referral process and workflow. Um, and, and of course, billing, that has always, uh, kind of been the linchpin for pharmacy, but Ohio has been, uh, you know, making great str- strides in that, uh, and really leading the way uh, in terms of provider status from a state perspective. Uh, and then finally, you know, some of the remote patient monitoring things. So, you know, how to, how to teach and train patients, you know, how are you sharing your blood glucose readings or your blood pressure readings and things like that and being able to, to share that kind of information. So, so many different considerations, but um, it's great to, we, we all had to kind of just jump into doing different things, whether it was working remotely or how to take care of patients virtually and all of those kinds of things. So very uh, exciting to, to see some of the things that are happening. So Jengus, as our final question, uh, I love to ask all of our guests, 
what is some advice that you would tell your younger self or for other pharmacists out there who are just getting started in their career? Oh, all right. I like this question. I would say identify mentors early and do not be afraid to, uh, to advocate for yourself. So I know, especially as a student, um, sometimes we're nervous um, to, or even as a resident, to ask a, a preceptor or a professor or someone um, to kind of take on that mentor role or ask for advice or um, you know, pick their brain about certain things because we feel like you know, they have better things to do with their time. Um, but the reality of it is many, many uh, people in our, in our profession um, are so willing to help. Um, they just need to be asked. You know, they don't, they, none of us are mind readers. None of our preceptors are mind readers. We don't know um, what uh, our, our students and learners um, and mentees, I guess, in that respect, um, want to, to get on uh, or get out of certain things or, you know, want for their next step until we're communicated that. And then we're more than ha happy to do that. So I had to remember that a few times. And, um, you know, I would always apologize for, you know, reaching out or uh, to someone to, to ask for advice or, you know, reaching out and get the perspective or, um, you know, get their help with um, going through the residency process or going through um, the job search process, you know, and, um, I had enough people tell me not to apologize and that they understand they were in our shoe, you know, in my shoes at that time um, or at a certain time. And so, um, you know, they want to pay it forward. Um, and, and that's how uh, Hillary, I, kn I know that you are as well and, and, and myself and others are, we want to pay it forward. And so um, I feel like there's definitely a lot of learners, students and residents that are hesitant sometimes about reaching out because they don't want to seem like a burden or that they're wasting anyone's time or that, you know, they, that that person has other better things to do. But the reality of it is um, we all want everyone else to do better and we want everyone else to reach their goals and to find something they're passionate about and to take it to that next step. And, um, and people who have been in the profession for a while, we, we enjoy giving back and paying it forward. And because we know where, learners have been and students have been and residents have been and it is tough to navigate um no one's an expert at being a resident when you're starting you know your first year as a resident i guess there's probably maybe some experts at being a student um but uh there's still so many things beyond a student that um, you can't learn um, as a student about your career and the real world and actual uh, things that are done in practice so um i would say to my younger self i would say to uh, to other um, younger student pharmacists or, or residents to uh, not be afraid to reach out and ask. Um, you are your best advocate, but also after you are the mentee, one day you will become the mentor. So just pay it forward as well. You know, it's a, it's a never ending cycle, um, but uh, we are here to, uh, to help and everyone um, is very collaborative. Um, and so, yeah, I appreciate that question. I think that's a great, great question. Yeah, great answer. I, I, I feel like a lot of people give that advice, finding a mentor, but how you framed it up about not being afraid to ask for help is so important to kind of share and advise students who are a, a little timid. Um, and then a great reminder for those who've been out in practice that, hey, be on the lookout because 
um, you know, we want to be the ones that are paying it forward for the next generation. So um, love all of the great tips and advice. And thanks for sharing a bit more about some of the exciting things that you guys are doing with telehealth. It was such a pleasure to have you as a guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Thank you for having me. This has uh, been a great experience. So I, um, I appreciate the opportunity. And that's the end of this episode. But if you want to hear more about pharmacists in leadership, be sure to check out my new book now available as an ebook and paperback on Amazon. Go over to Amazon and search for How Pharmacists Lead, Answers from Women Who Are Leading, Succeeding, and Impacting Pharmacy. And I hope you check it out. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We are going to be relaunching our newsletter. So be sure that you're signed up over at pharmacyadvisory.com. There's a place to sign up for the newsletter and we're going to be sharing some good content. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps us to get in front of more pharmacists and others interested in the pharmacy industry. We really appreciate your support in sharing this content. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group, for updates on new podcasts. Thanks for listening.